Welcome to Projected Futures, where we explore the possibilities of projection mapping. I'm Ryan Ritchie. Today we have two guests from Falcons Creative Group. Falcons is celebrating its 20th year in the immersive entertainment business, and in that time they've integrated projection mapping into all kinds of attractions, including theme park rides, walkthrough attractions, and dome projection shows. Their 2009 show, Dragon's Treasure, took the idea of a dome show to the extreme, combining 360-degree projection with physical set pieces, practical effects, and an ornate, moving score. It truly has to be seen to be believed, so we've posted a video all about Dragon's Treasure on our website, projectedfutures.net. Joining me from Falcon's Creative Group to talk about Dragon's Treasure and many other projects is Saham Ali, Falcon's Director of Technology, and Jesse Allen, Falcon's Editorial Director. Saham, Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Ryan. So as I mentioned in the intro, Falcon's is an entertainment design company. Give us a sense of where projection mapping sort of fits into the company's overall business. Well, to answer that, actually, to you kind of have to know the start of the company. Cecil McFurry, who is our chief creative officer, he uh, is really one of the pioneers in projection mapping. So if you rewind the theme park clock way back into the early 90s, uh, he did the projection design on the Terminator 2 experience at Universal Studios, which at the time was absolutely groundbreaking in the fact that you were projecting on multiple surfaces. You had live actors that apparently looked like they were, you know, jumping in and out of a screen. Uh, you had, you know, animatronics that also blended in. Um, and then on the heels of that success, uh, he also did the projection mapping layout for the Twister ride um, that opened around the same time that uh, Animal Kingdom did for Disney. And uh, the Twister ride at Universal Studios, it actually did some really creative things where, you know, they actually had what looked like an active tornado in the room. Um, and then, it, you know, at like the end of it, it actually looks like it's ripping up the screen and the set that, that, that it's in in its own environment. Um, those kinds of things were really ahead of, uh, anything else that was going on there. Um, and then as he like transitioned out of working with Universal and whatnot into creating his own company, uh, he just keeps like <laughs> pushing the envelope on what's possible with projection mapping. Um, one of the ones we talked about uh, in his in the early times was in 2003, we did a project called Adventures into the Deep, which was a dome projection um, show. What's unique about Falcons is that we're not just projecting on surfaces that already exist, but we are also a master plan and master planning and designing agency. Um, so essentially we're building the entire environment to fit the projection mapping. So uh, Adventures into the Deep was pretty revolutionary at the time, being like an 8K digital dome film uh, way back in the day, right? So now I'll let uh, Saham talk about kind of like the next evolutions there. We uh, The big one, of course, was the uh, 2009 Dragon's Treasure um, projection show, the bubble show in Macau, China. Yeah, that was uh, that was really exciting. I think, um, you know, 
up until recently, still one of the largest physical domes on, on the planet. Um, and at that time, the resolutions and frame rate, I think it was a 60 FPS show that was 6K in resolution. So again, back in 2009, that was that was a pretty big deal. But what set that one apart, again, because we had full creative control, was the uh, integration of physical practical effects. I think there's lights in the actual uh, dome itself. There was a, a chandelier water feature that would come down in the center of the room. Like it, it was an incredible feat of integrating both the digital content with the live action practical effects. And you'd mentioned earlier Adventures into the Deep back in 2003. I mean, that's 17 years. That's a that's a lifetime for this uh, projection technology, right? So, Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking about the number of lumens being limited and and where media servers were and all of that good stuff. What have been some of the key technological breakthroughs through the years? Yeah, I mean, um, so like, I mean, you said it, the uh, projection, the projector technologies themselves have really uh, come a long way. Um, back then, you know, you had to use lots and lots of projectors to build up all that resolution, uh, which required lots and lots of video processing. Media servers were massive, synchronization across everything. It was, it was a very complicated um, process. Um, and, and as of late, you know, we've gotten advances as, such as uh, laser projectors, uh, higher higher frame rate larger resolutions allowing for less projectors themselves um, the ability to easily blend um, has become a big thing where you know it, before it was like a whole day process to uh, color calibrate uh, brightness and uh, uh, getting everything to sync and now you know instead of having to do it with 24 30 projectors we can do it with maybe six computing technology has come a long way I think the uh, Dragon's Treasure, that had something like 15 media servers um, that were just cranking uh, on these uh, image files to project it all in real time. Now you can achieve that effective same resolution, same throughput at with one or two media servers. Um, and and the, the requirements have come way down, but all that does is give us the uh, creative creativity to continue pushing it further. Larger resolutions, larger services, more projectors, um, and just taking it to the next level. And one of the things about screen projection in particular in attractions has been that it sort of has come in waves, right? You had some of those, you know, initial groundbreaking attractions like T2. And over time, maybe a little bit of screen fatigue set in in terms of of people experiencing or talking about attractions. But I feel like now we're sort of seeing maybe because of that new technology, we're seeing particularly projection mapping, things like Runaway Railway at, at Hollywood Studios, for example, it seems like uh, maybe we're we're back to another upswing in, in the use of video in, in attractions. I'm just curious how you feel about that. I definitely think that that's true. It's uh, I always call projection mapping like the world's greatest magic trick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can know you're you're kind of doing things that we're describing in today's terms as like XR, where you're blending virtual environments with physical environments. That's nothing new to the theme park world because we've been doing that with dark rides and all that stuff for decades. Um, but now it's actually becoming a two-way conversation. That's the difference is like when people go in and they experience a dark ride or they uh, are a walkthrough, perhaps even a museum experience, um, now they're able to interact with that. 
and we're starting to see the evolution of that coming like full force. I mean, real-time engines are changing the whole nature of everything about projection mapping. So, you know, we're able to do a lot of the things that we traditionally did a lot faster, a lot more efficient with greater resolution. And now we're also able to include variants on that. So um, that's the fascinating part of it. Yeah, the 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 ability to have interactivity um, and moving away from the idea of a linear story, but now um, endless possibilities, um, being able to engage with the audience, that level of immersion that results is, you know, it's never been done. But now we're starting to see these type of things pop up. I think, uh, you know, a really good example, it's not fully there, but I mean, the Disney's Star Wars land, you know, that physical build out integrated with the really, really slick, you know, uh, projection mapping that makes it feel like you're in rooms bigger than they've actually created. Um, You know, that's, and and a lot of it was um, pre-rendered, but then the smugglers run, that's the interactive part. Now you're engaging in a ride that has interactive input that leads to different outcomes. And so these type of rides are just going to further and further get into these, uh, these theme park experiences. And we're really excited to kind of be, working on some of these technologies on the back end. I also think, you know, one of the things that we talk about, especially in like dark ride development is this whole concept of corner pinning uh, that Cecil talks about. Now, um, one of the rides that first started doing this, like at a really crazy level was uh, in 2005 for Bush Gardens, Williamsburg, Cecil and the Falcons team put together Curse of the Dark Castle. And one of the things like we talk about 3D projection mapping now, uh, where you create this illusion of depth and and movement, um, there they were doing stuff like stretching out the animation and the scenes. So as the ride car approached the screen at a certain angle, it would still look like you're in the correct perspective. Kind of like if you've ever seen those like uh, words on the street like stop or or turn or whatever. And like at a distance, they look normal, but as you get up close to them, they look all stretched out. Well, in corner pinning, it's kind of the same thing. The the image looks all stretched out. And as the ride vehicle gets close to it, it evens out to look normal. That was really revolutionary back in the time. But now uh, (laughs) this is even the crazier part is we're able to track both people and the ride cars. So that kind of corner pinning stretching is now happening real time. So basically what I'm saying is the entire show's perspective can be custom tailored to where you are in the room at in real time. The individual experience. Yes. (laughs) It's, it's interesting to me because, you know, there's so much buzz around or was for a while around virtual reality and augmented reality. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, it is sort of like XR without, any headset and it it feels like because you can experience it with other people that maybe this truly is the most immersive um the the path to the most immersiveness i mean i know i was years ago there was a talk and someone had mentioned that if you're trying to you know see what virtual reality the the ultimate goal of virtual reality go to a theme park because essentially it's immersing you you know with all of your senses and uh, you're not wearing this bulky headset to accomplish it and that it, what's kind of interesting in that conversation is that, um, you know, virtual reality kind of got a lot of flack as it started to emerge as, you know, um, how far is this going to go? What, you know, is, is everybody just going to be wearing headsets and all that stuff? Um, I think what we're discovering with that is VR has given us so many ideas on how to impro- uh, approach 
um, virtual environments that we basically have taken that system and turned it inside out. So instead of, you know, you've got a headset and you're looking in, now we're taking all the tracking and movement and, and spatial uh, awareness and put that up on walls and screens and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, since since we've been doing the uh, dome projections and, and, and Into the Deep being a really good example, that was a 360 film, right? And what is virtual reality, uh, mostly other than a 360 film, other than it's unique to a user's perspective. And so storytelling had to adapt to this new type of medium. And so we saw when, you know, the Oculus and these things started coming, uh, you know, democratized hardware, wherever we could get them, that the storytelling tools were having to catch up with the hardware. And so now we've kind of gotten past that point. And as, as Jesse mentioned, you know, we love VR. We, we had a really good experience in using the technology to do the uh, Battle of Ire at Bush Gardens. However, internally, we really like to use virtual reality as a tool to create these uh, projection mapped. 3D experiences because where we can't go on site and be able to see things in context, it allows for that. It's still a great medium. It doesn't necessarily have to be pushed upon people where we have the capability um, of designing spaces and creating the media to fit that space. For people who are listening who maybe work more in projection mapping shows or you know one-time events with projection mapping and are very much thinking just about the projection mapping, obviously you're combining a lot of technologies, a lot of other sensory things are going on. What do you think folks should maybe take away or keep in mind from the broader world of immersive entertainment if they're planning uh, some sort of projection mapping show? For example, the importance of sound. Sure. So I, you know, my background is actually in interactive audio. It's like my, I guess my first love of, of what I do or have done is in my career. And I, I think that because sound has so many of the things that makes uh, projection mapping special, and then that is basically creating not only the, you know, you have the visual presentation, but sound is the emotional presentation, right? And in sound, you can do tricks of like um, changing what the depth is with reverbs and whatnot. And just the amount of channels like uh, we were talking about in our uh, Dragon's Treasure um, show there was over 50 channels of surround sound it brings in an emotion it brings in a spatial awareness it kind of goes beyond even what you're seeing for an audience it's about how you feel about the experience so you know for us we go into here's where the sound or here is the sound it's more where is the sound in 3d space and we're able to track that from speaker to speaker to speaker and then as far as the the score you know, you have so much depth to play with because not only are you talking about the depth that you're creating in your, your 3D presentation or whatever, but also the, the physical depth of mapping things into an environment. You're not limited to two speakers. You're not limited to the box of a movie theater. You can make it, you know, uh, an array in a dome. You can make it an array across multiple buildings in a city. As you see things on those different buildings, you can hear sound from those individual speakers. And then all of a sudden, it does become a greater illusion, right? Now people are like, they don't, they, they see something and their ears detect that, hey, it's coming from that position. And your ears are so accurate as far as like where sound is actually coming from that it can pull them deeper and deeper into the immersion of the whole show. So even though 
a lot of people think of projection mapping as a visual medium, it opens up this extraordinary door to spatial awareness with sound design uh, at, at a crazy level. Yeah. One, one of the things I think me and Jesse were talking about a couple of years ago is um, uh, one of the techs that have kind of evolved out of a need and necessity is the type of tools in order to kind of make this a little bit easier when you're having to deal with 50 some odd channels of creating that type of you know audio content. And so something that you know, you would have never thought um, some of the video game technology that was hitting the market was allowing uh, game developers to do basically ray tracing audio, right? Synthesizing what audio would sound like if it bounces off a tin surface versus a metal surface or a glass wall and making it feel like you're really there. And some of these technologies have found their way into some of the professional tool sets that we can now, you know, leverage to uh, simplify the creation of this content. But um, it's it's just very exciting how it's all coming together. Yeah. So like in a video game world, essentially what you have is you build out your 3D world inside the video game. You put emitters where the sound is. And then typically you have your game camera. This is what the, the user who is going through the game sees. There's a virtual microphone hooked to that. And those emitters are essentially anytime that that camera faces a certain direction, it's facing an invisible emitter that's emitting sound. So what we're basically doing, as we said with the, the VR thing, we're, in, we're taking that technology and turning it inside out. Now that's a physical thing. So, you know, as the audience looks, they're seeing, you know, objects in the physical world that the emitter is an actual physical speaker that's emitting sound. And we're able to track where the sound goes in the show um, that way. I mean, and it even is, as we were talking about, rooms that can change their perspective based on where the user is uh, looking or walking, you can do that with sound as well. If I could go back 10 years, well, there's a lot of things I would change, but I would, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would tell myself to try to learn a game engine inside and out because it just feels like, you know, that's where everything's headed and where a lot of this technology is coming from as we see it being used in virtual production now and, and everything else. So that's, it's interesting how prominent that's becoming in so many fields. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's actually really incredible. Ten plus years ago, when I was starting to see the the I was calling it like the technological renaissance. It was this it was this merging of visual effects and game and even other types of tools. But this convergence was happening, and and now we're finding that man, if you if you know a real time engine. Um, you can do just about anything, whether it's projection, whether it's simulating, whether it's audio, whether it's, you know, like the technology exists, the tools exist, and now it's just adapting workflows to work within the the confines, if you want to call it that, for a, a real-time game engine. But yeah, I totally agree. Uh, that's one thing I would, you know, would have definitely told myself to jump on and learn specifically. But at the same time, uh, it was evolving. You know, there was there was the, the Unity and Unreal. They, they were, uh, I think Unreal was out 10 years ago. It was UD3 and, and UDK. Um, and we were playing it with it then, but it was very specific to games. Um, but now uh, Unity has come out. Um, and since Unity even, we have uh, Unreal and how they've dominated the visual effects market. And even now developers are using it for other types of things you can do with it. It's very, it's no longer just a game engine. It's an engine. <laughs> you can do just about anything with it. Earlier when we were talking about audio, you had mentioned, uh, I believe it was Jesse mentioned Dragon's Treasure. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Give us an overview of that project. 
Sure. Um, essentially, um, this was way back in uh, around 2009. And the city of Macau essentially has, uh, we kind of call that like the Las Vegas of China, right? <laughs> it's, like, you know, very, it's kind of the epicenter of gambling, but gambling is a very different thing culturally over there. Um, and essentially, one of the hotels there wanted to, or one of the casinos there wanted to attract visitors. And so they decided to create this pre-show that essentially people came through to kind of get them amped up about their experience there. Um, and when they approached uh, Cecil and they, you know, said, hey, this is the kind of thing that we want to do. He essentially came up with a story with our team here that was all about dragons, which, of course, in the Chinese culture really kind of goes you know, with good luck, right? They're not like these menacing things, you know? Um, so his whole story there was to basically immerse thousands of guests. You know, I, I don't know what the capacity is per uh, show. It was dozens and dozens and dozens. Yeah, several hundred. Yeah. Um, and essentially, as you walked in, it would look like you're, uh, you know, at surface level, and then it would dive you under the uh, ocean and you go on this huge... Uh, journey kind of discovering um, these different types of dragons from different types of um, parts of, I, I guess, I would almost say elements. So you have like a winter dragon, a fire dragon, an ocean dragon, um, and you're kind of on the quest to find the jade dragon. And you're um, basically the thing that's leading you through this journey is this little golden carp that you discover later has been the jade dragon the entire time. People, you know, and the whole thing kind of just, you know, goes through, I guess, a little bit of Chinese lore and whatnot, and, and it's all about luck and, and everything. This show was so popular that you know a lot of people were, you know, a lot of the tour companies were being, bringing guests in just to see this show. Uh, they said that, you know, they had millions of people that came through this thing. A lot of people would go through the show and then come out of the exit and go right back into the show and then find a different spot in the Dome Theater to rewatch the whole thing again. As Saham said, it was more than just projections. Um, so there would be parts where the dragon would fly to a specific part of the dome and uh, they would shoot like smoke through the screen. So like, like the dragon was like breathing fire or whatnot. They had strobes all over the different parts of the screen uh, to, to create even more, um, I guess, practical effects. And then at certain parts of the show, they actually had these huge oval openings um, open up and these gigantic, uh, they kind of look like jellyfish, would come down they would illuminate in different colors. And then uh, the center of the dome would basically come down and there was this huge water sculpture that would, you know, drop water down into the center of the theater and they had laser lights and all. I mean, it was just at a technical level, just in the stratosphere of creativity. And um, even in our, uh, when we kind of recounted in the tribute, it for the time, it was just, crazy ambitious and a lot of the clients and people involved um, were just like this was one of the coolest things that they've ever done given the immense scale of that project i'm curious about the the pre-production and sort of the pre-visualization of it and how you convey that especially to clients was it you know was there physical models involved was it all virtual how how do you sort of communicate the scale and and what that final product will look like 
Um, you know, back then they actually were building physical models. This was also kind of the early days of um, virtual reality. So uh, there's in the little video that we put together, you can actually see one of the old VR headsets and the client sitting in the, <laughs> the office with the design staff kind of looking around at these, you know, real basic models and stuff like that. It It's the precursor to a lot of the things that we are doing today. There's so many breakthroughs. I'm curious if there are any projects, projection mapping or immersive that you've personally experienced that really blew you away that that maybe someone else worked on or something that really feels, you know, cutting edge elsewhere in the industry right now. Well, you know, when I first started with Falcons, again, I had come back, I had come out of a like documentary film um, and video game background. Um, and I also had a background in, in like live theater. And uh, we were working in 2016 on Kennedy Space Center's museum called Heroes and Legends. This is kind of a museum experience uh, along with the Astronaut Hall of Fame. Uh, one of my coworkers, Jason Ambler, who's our media VP, was working on um, this really crazy projection mapping thing involving the Gemini 9 capsule. So, you know, in a typical, like, type museum type environment when you walk in and you see it, you know, a historic vehicle, right? Um, a lot of times there'll be a little, you know, placard and you'd read about, oh, this vehicle did this, 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 and this. Um, Falcons basically said, no, how about we, um, how about we actually do something different and that the vehicle itself will tell you its story in like the most dramatic fashion ever. So real a quick scenario here. Gemini 9 was one of the early pre-Apollo missions. Um, Tom Stafford, Gene Cernan were the two astronauts that went up in this little tiny capsule. And it was a, another one of the very first like learning to work in space, spacewalk kind of missions. And essentially what happened there is um, Gene Cernan gets out of the capsule. He um, goes to the back of the Gemini capsule and tries to get on some extra equipment and then realizes he has zero control over like his movement and whatnot. He basically gets stuck in space. Um, his suit starts to rip. The sun's like burning his skin. You know, it's like this near catastrophic event. Um, so how Falcons approached this was they projection mapped a lot of the interviews and the, you know, 2d footage stuff onto the Gemini capsule. So when the guests walk up, you know, they see this projection map show on the actual capsule. So it's the capsule telling them their story. But the mind blowing part is that there is this sheet of glass essentially that's also in front of this, that is a pepper's ghost effect. And a pepper's ghost is essentially is like, you know, you're projecting on a, uh, a mirror that essentially people can't see because it's like not 100%, you know, there or not. It's a little bit opaque. It creates the illusion of a hologram. So here's your projection mapped uh, capsule. And all of a sudden the door opens up and it looks like physically an astronaut comes out of the Gemini capsule and is it's Gene Cernan. And he's actually trying to go through this, these motions. So here's me working on a couple of the exhibits in the area there, and uh, my coworkers are creating this. And I really hadn't seen projection mapping at that level ever before. And my jaw just hit the floor. I, I could not believe it was just the most inspiring thing for me and really sent me down this like two year rabbit hole of, of exploring 
pretty much anything I could find on projection mapping. I am like, that is the future. (laughs) It It was a real clever integration of two techniques to achieve this effect, which if you haven't checked it out, please, you know, check it out. It's Kennedy space centers. Um, a really good one I want to talk about was uh, when we did in 2016, the IMG's world of adventure um, to our own here is uh, we have a product out there called Circumotion. I had the opportunity to actually go out and see this thing um, in action. And um, it, it is unlike anything uh, you, you will have ever experienced. It's kind of the concept of uh, integrating both a dome, which has stereoscopic 360 degree content with a motion base that has 200 some people uh, sitting all with you at the same time. And this motion base is uh, capable of three degrees of freedom. So, you know, it'll spin around, it'll tilt uh, in in, in both directions. And so now you have media content that's in stereo that can um, be choreographed with this motion base. Um, And now the media content is actually could have multiple storylines. And so, you know, you have two halves to this platform, half the audience is looking in one direction, the other half's looking the other. And so you have actually two storylines happening at the same time. So you could ride this thing twice. And when I saw this, uh, I was just completely blown away, not only for the fact that it was multiple, uh, multiple stories kind of perfectly intertwined into one media piece, but also the fact that the content, like this was the first time I think anybody had produced content that had 3D stuff, like let's say a missile, um, come out of 3D uh, in screen space, out into physical space, and then back out into 3D space without breaking your eyes. And putting it all together with the sound and the motion base, it was like, I, I and I've seen a lot of stuff and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is crazy. How it it is just, it's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) It is. And I I hope it it's in the U S somewhere because I would love to uh, have more people check it out. Uh, The only one currently that exists is in Dubai, one in the world. (laughs) IMG worlds of adventure. It's like one of the largest indoor theme parks. Fully air conditioned (laughs) in Dubai. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that Kennedy Space Center, the just the refresh overall, I, I tell people that, you know, especially if you're a fan of what we think was like the original Epcot Center, I feel like Kennedy Space Center right now is sort of the closest thing to that in terms of the, that sense of wonder and, and the technology used with uh, a lot of the displays put in over the last few years is is really impressive there. That was definitely one of my favorite projects. Very good. Jesse, you had mentioned you come from a documentary background. and What's different working with video for an immersive attraction or experience versus traditional film or video? Well, I think the biggest difference is really if you stop thinking about it as um, you are making a film for a rectangle, <laughs> but you are actually more or less composing a, a theater production. As like I said, one of my other backgrounds is theater pro- production. And essentially they relate very heavily in the fact that you have an audience and they're looking into a 3D space. So, you know, your show can happen from anywhere within that stage. Right. So if you stop thinking about it as a, a screen, more of it as a stage, it gives you so many more liberties as a, a designer to tell a story in, in a greater space. Um, and I think that's one of the things that a lot of like young uh, projection mappers are inexperienced ones 
um, seem to constrain themselves to. Well, it should only happen in this tiny little space and it has to be, you know, this specific shape. It's like take advantage of any shape that you have. Um, you can have characters or elements start from one place and kind of uh, go into another, or you can start with convincing the audience that everything is going to happen in a very specific uh, window. And then all of a sudden something unexpected happens. One of the characters goes, breaks the fourth wall, right? And now becomes part of the audience's space or a greater space. And a really good example of that is uh, we did a uh, an intro, intro sequence to the Jane Goodall experience at um, the National Geographic Museum of Washington, D.C. So as guests walk in, they see what it looks to be um, <laughs> three more or less like uh, windows or our, our placards that talk about Jane's early experiences in Gambia, Africa. And she's, of course, talking about the chimpanzees and their relationship to humans and all that stuff. And this this thing kind of winds up into this, you know, really intense story. And then at one moment, the chimp basically comes out of the frame and starts climbing up the wall and then goes up on top of the screen and is looking down at the audience. And <laughs> most people don't realize the whole space had been projection mapped. It's just we had matched the background to look exactly like the painted background. So again, now you've created that illusion of this is what normal is. And all of a sudden you've broken the fourth wall and people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on a second. Is that like, <laughs> <laughs> and those are the kind of tricks that you can do. I mean, it, it, it essentially is, it's that sleight of hand trick, just like a music, uh, magician would do where they convince you that there is a reality and then they break that reality by showing you something else. So much of it's magic. And, and the, the funny thing is so much of it you know, has such a long lineage. We think about all of the the technology needed to to pull off these effects, and yet a Pepper's Ghost, for example, has existed, you know, for such a long time and and hundreds of years. Yeah. The one thing I did want to ask about the technology is, given that your projects are so unique, when you start on a new project, do you do you have a particular? Uh, brand or type of projector or, or media server? Is there sort of a, a base, you know, package that you're starting from? Or is everything so unique that it really depends on the project? I think it's it's the latter. It's really, you know, what is the story? What is it that you're trying to achieve? And then we kind of find out what technology can fill the, the gaps and, and help execute. And so, yeah, we're not beholden to any projection technology per se, you know, provider, you know, something might require a certain amount of brightness and one projector company offers that. Um, maybe it's a physical limitation of uh, infrastructure of where the install is going to be. That's going to require the light source to be decoupled from the projection engine itself. You know, there's, it, it just really depends on the project. Um, but there are definitely um, some projection, you know, providers that offer technologies that others don't. And uh, they're, you know, when we're going through our creative design process uh, and we want to maybe uh, leverage that specific technology, we'll, we'll bring it up, and we, but we're not going to force it. You know, it's, it's definitely the story. Sure. And of course, the, the podcast is called Projected Futures. So I want to get your thoughts on where we're headed. Where do you see this technology five, 10 years from now? And what are maybe some of the bottlenecks or, or issues that you'd like to see addressed or you think will will make this all easier in the future? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, from my end, um, I'm 
probably going to have to say, uh, well, one of the biggest bottlenecks right now, um, in order to, it's like, it's like, uh, you have to have this before you can have this. And, uh, we, we've seen that happen when we've leapfrogged in, in compute, uh, computer technology and projection technology. And we saw that happen with, you know, video, uh, GPUs, uh, allowing for video games. And then we started seeing 4k and stereo and VR and all these things. And now all of a sudden GPUs were the craziest, fastest things on the planet. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I want to do uh, 120 FPS in 4k, uh, for one person. It's like, all right, cool. Uh, now I want to do it for five people simultaneously. Uh, all right, how do I do that? Uh, and and so what I'm forecasting is um, the the compute hardware is going to keep on leapfrogging every generation, but it's going to allow for uh, higher frame rates, uh, more color depth that will allow for, um, as we mentioned, the whole interactive real-time bit and allowing that to happen for multiple people simultaneously. Virtual reality without a headset where everyone gets to have a unique POV without the need of a computer on your head. That's, that's gonna, that's gonna go away. Um, and we'll be able to walk into a room together and see completely different, unique things. Yeah. Kind of expand on that. Essentially we've, we're already seeing technical demos where people can put on what looks kind of like 3d glasses, but essentially what's happening is, as you walk into an environment, there's a group of things that are projection mapped but everybody in the room is seeing something totally different. So coming from the video game background and this kind of like related to, you know, as I came on with the Kennedy Space Center project, I remember going in and and talking to executive staff here. I'm like, I don't know exactly what you all are doing here, but I want to be a part of this because this is going to get super cool. And it is ever since that day has been super cool. It's about, you know, turning these like physical spaces, not only into something that is just like awe-inspiring and wonderful from a, just a visual aesthetic or a sound aesthetic, but now we are getting into the point where it it is like a video game in the sense of you can go in and you are part of the story. I mean, truly part of the story and, and things that you do and interact with help custom tailor your own personal experience. So when people talk about, you know, um, you know, going to maybe a theme park or whatever, they're going to walk away with a lot of the same feelings that like diehard gamers had and, mm-hmm. you know, video games like, oh man, that one part that, you know, that did this and this is the decision I made and the outcome was this. And it could be completely different than your friend who went with you, maybe even in the same room. And they're like, really? Like all I had to do was change. And that would have changed the whole story. Oh, I'm going back, man. Or, you know, uh, maybe it's even you know, multiple versions of that ride at different parks and each one offers a different experience. Or you bring it home. Yeah, exactly. Or <laughs> yeah, cross platform between the, uh, the theme park and the video game. I mean, it just, there is this crazy amount of storytelling potential and really bringing that greater world to your guests. Very good. And lastly, what would you say to someone, you know, be the, maybe a high school student or whoever who goes, they do this immersive experience they go to a theme park they have this incredible experience and they say this is what this is what i want to do what what advice do you have as far as the disciplines or or maybe some of the soft skills that really are required to to thrive in the industry i would say really the thing is if you're going to develop a skill develop the skill of adaptation right (laughs) always keep an open mind always think of it as uh you know how can i tell a compelling story 
Um, so, you know, a lot of the storytelling principles are there. Um, and kind of going way back into the roots again is um, study theatrics a little bit, because really, as we go into the future, it's it's about the stage that you're setting. It's more so than anything else. Like, what are you going to put into that space that pulls people into that environment and makes them feel like they are attached to it? Yeah, um, I, I would definitely say experimentation, right? There's nothing wrong with it try things. The tools are out there. They're so, I mean, this stuff did not exist when I was a kid and you didn't even have a computer at home that was good enough to do it. And now you can do a lot of this on just basic laptops, right? Like it's, it's, it's so accessible. Um, so given that, but also don't negate old school tricks, <laughs> you know, like you said, Pepper's Ghost, that's like 1700s is when that was <laughs> developed and, and we're still using it today. And if, if you execute it well, it's really, really effective. And then, yes, absolutely, the, the theatrics and understanding what, uh, how performances and engaging an audience, how that translates into a storytelling uh, medium, right? It, and it, it can it go to whether it's 360 VR, it could be on stage, it could be for a video game and a linear, it could be anything, but understanding the storytelling nuances and all the technical things that happen behind the scene is just going to further empower you with, with, with whatever tool you decide to use. The greatest words of discovery is, uh, well, that's funny. <laughs> so, so as you're, you know, tinkering around with whatever program and maybe you use it in an unconventional way and something unexpected happens. Yeah. That, that could be it's the a seeds. <laughs> yeah. It could be the seeds to something that is, you know, quite profound in the future. So, well, I look forward to seeing the innovative and profound projects from Falcons in the future. Saham, Jesse, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us, Ryan. Thanks, man. Again, that was Saham Ali, the Director of Technology for Falcons Creative Group, and Jesse Allen, Falcons Editorial Director. You can check out their video about Dragon's Treasure on our website at projectedfutures.net and see more of their projects at falconscreativegroup.com. And before I go, I just wanted to ask a quick favor. If you're a subscriber to the show, please take a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever it is you get your podcast. These reviews are really key to people discovering and giving the show a listen. So I really appreciate it. I'm Ryan Ritchie, and I hope you join us again next time for more Projective Futures.